Well, this morning we are going to be uh, in Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9. So I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn over there in your Bible uh, while I get it set up this morning. Uh, if, if you don't have a Bible, I want to invite you to take one of the ones that we've provided for you. So at the middle of each aisle, we've got Bibles that are under the chairs. Flag somebody down sitting on the middle, have them pass it to you. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, please take that one. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have it. And we'd love to talk to you later about what you read there. Uh, there is life and hope in that book. It is not a normal book. We believe that it, that it is a word from God that changes people because it's changing us. And we'd love the chance to talk to you about what's there if you, if you aren't familiar with it or don't own a copy. So take that one. This morning we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 9, uh, continuing on in a series that we've just recently started on the Bible's wisdom literature. It's one of the favorite subjects in the Bible, the subject of wisdom. And what we've been talking about, the way we've, the way we've framed what wisdom is, is that wisdom is different from law that tells you what to do and what not to do. Wisdom is different from history that tells you what happened. Wisdom is about an instinct that grows in you so that you know how to live life well. So that you know what to do in the parts of your life that aren't scripted. When, when you are confronted with choices that all of us are confronted with, that, that don't have a script that the Bible or any other document gives to you, you'll know what to do when that time comes. An instinct for living life well in the world as it is. But there's a danger in framing wisdom like this. I've noticed it in myself, even in the last few weeks as I've been studying all this stuff. Um, I think the danger is that we start to see wisdom as something that's ambiguous. Because we've we've talked about wisdom as what you need when the situation's not scripted, when it isn't obvious what to do. So you could be thinking about wisdom as something that operates in the gray area, as something that could go either way, as something that's terribly nuanced. That's definitely the way that I normally come at life. I love nuance. I mean, I have never met a nuance that I didn't like. I am not a black and white kind of person in general. And it's at that point that Proverbs smacks me in the face, and maybe it'll smack you in the face too. Because even though wisdom is what you need when life isn't scripted, when choices are complicated and maybe not obvious to you at first, it is not for that reason something that isn't clear, something that doesn't operate in the world of right and wrong. In fact, all through Proverbs, some of the stuff we've already seen, but all the stuff we're going to see from this week on, wisdom is framed in light of either or choices, in light of a better way and a worse way, in light of some things that seem pretty black and white. And we've seen it already in the setup for wisdom, we're going to see it in the, in the specific topics that wisdom addresses as we get further into Proverbs starting after Easter. Uh, one of the favorite, uh, favorite formats for Proverbs are the contrast formats. This, not this, but this. Black and white, two ways. A gentle answer turns away wrath, one proverb says, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It's either or. It's two ways. Now, that's a theme that comes up all through Proverbs, but I think the best place to see it in action, the clearest, uh, the clearest place that it shows up is actually in Proverbs chapter 9, where we're going to look today. 
This chapter occurs at the end of the first major section in Proverbs. If you've been with us uh, the last couple of weeks, this will sound familiar to you. If, you're, if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, let me, let me just tell you the way Proverbs breaks down. There's, there's the first nine chapters, and those are poems celebrating wisdom, the beauty of it, the, 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 the reason you should seek it with everything that you are, where you can find it in the fear or trust of the Lord with all of your heart. The first nine chapters set up why wisdom is worth seeking. And then chapter 10 jumps into what we normally think of as Proverbs, the sort of short, tweetable, pithy statements about life in the world and all of its complexity. From 10 to the end of the book is all those little short bursts of Proverbs. Chapter 9 comes at the very end of this opening section, a a prologue, a sort of celebration of wisdom in general. And the reason it's put there, the editors of this collection put it there very specifically. It put it there because, because it sets up how we're supposed to engage with everything that comes next. We need to see what we do with our money, how we use our words, what we do with our sex lives, how we manage our relationships, how much time we spend sleeping versus working. We need to see all of these nitty-gritty things that Proverbs is going to take us into in light of the choice, the big choice between wisdom and foolishness. And to see all of the nitty-gritty in light of that choice, we need to understand the stakes of that choice, how to recognize that choice when we come to it, why we should seek wisdom instead of foolishness in every area of our lives. That's what chapter 9 is about. And the way that chapter 9 gets there is by giving us an image, a contrasting image between wisdom pictured as a woman and folly pictured as a woman each calling out to the simple who walk by, beckoning them to come to her for life, for joy, for satisfaction. Now, I want to read this passage as it sets up, but pay attention to that contrast between the woman wisdom and how she's described, the woman folly and how she's described, and then we're going to walk through and try to understand the difference in these choices together. I want to read the text first. I'm going to ask you to stand with me now in honor of God's word while I read from chapter 9. I'm going to read the whole thing, verse 1 to verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beast. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple... Let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come eat of my bread, drink of my wine that I've mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he'll he'll hate you. Reprove a wise man and he'll love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he'll be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he'll increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me, your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. 
She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Did you notice that contrast between the woman wisdom and the woman folly? It's at either end of the chapter. There's this middle section we'll come to later that describes people who respond well to wisdom or who respond well to folly. But the beginning and the end are these two pictures of woman wisdom and woman folly, the two ways to live, the choices that we're faced in all the twists and turns of our lives between acting wisely and acting foolishly. I want to unpack these two characters together as we move through. I want to start with the two voices. Who are these voices that are calling out? In one sense, it's clear. There's woman wisdom, there's woman folly. We've said that much. They're calling out to the simple. The simple in Proverbs is the guy who, not necessarily foolish, and it's not that he's unintelligent, it's the guy who's just not paying attention, who's just sort of blowing through life, just sort of rolling with things as they come. He's not engaged with his life. He's not living with his eyes open. He's a person who lacks wisdom and is susceptible to folly because he's not paying attention. So both wisdom and folly call out to this person passing by and try to beckon him in. That much is clear, but I think the details point us towards an even clearer sense of who these two voices are, why they're why they're pictured in the way that they are. I got a lot of help on this from a book on Proverbs by an Old Testament professor named Trimper Longman. It's a book on Proverbs that's been really helpful all through the series so far, but especially on this passage. He pointed out a couple of details here that I would have just blown right over. Maybe you did too, but that I think hold the key to us understanding who these voices really are on a deeper level. Here's the first detail. The first detail is where these women sit. Where these women sit. Both sit in a house that's built at the highest place of the town. That's not a random detail. That's the spot where throughout the ancient world, people would build their temples. Throughout the ancient world, in Jerusalem and in all of Israel's neighbors, the high places... The high places were the places of worship. That's where you went to meet your gods. That that phrase, high places, comes out a lot in the stories of Israel's history, especially in the kings. You read through the kings, one of the things God is constantly calling Israel to abandon and threatening to punish them for is the high places that they've allowed to stay in their land, the places that belong to the gods of their enemies, the gods of the nations that had been there in the promised land before Israel arrived. They kept cultivating those high places which were leading them away from God. The fact that woman wisdom and woman folly sit at the highest places of the town doing their calling points to who they really are. They're gods. They represent the voice of the God of Israel or they represent the voice of somebody else. Here's another detail, though. The meal is the important detail. It's not just 
where they sit when they're inviting the people who pass by. It's what they're inviting them into. What they're inviting them into is is a feast. Here's what Longman says about meals. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, to eat with someone is to form an intimate relationship with that person. These women want a relationship. Because it's not possible to be united to both of them, they compete for attention. Does that make sense? The ancient world, meals were not just meals. You didn't just eat power food so you could have the energy you needed to get through your day. Meals were sacred events almost. They were a time for relationship. You invited someone in when you wanted to know them intimately. So by sitting at the highest places of the town, by offering passers-by to come and feast, these women show who they really are. These are images of the divine. Either the God of Israel, the God who made us, the God who came to us in Jesus, or some other God. For Israel, the gods of their neighbors, the Baals. For us, whatever else besides the God who made us, we live in relationship with. These voices represent life lived in relationship with God or some other God. Now, what we said about wisdom so far is that wisdom is an instinct to live life well. Wisdom is what you need when you're confronted with choices that you couldn't have predicted that weren't scripted for you. Behind each of these choices, the choice of how to use your words or your money or all the different topics we're going to get into, behind each of those choices is another choice, a deeper, more significant choice. Behind all of our Individual choices are acts of worship at some level. Acts that fear the Lord or that fear or worship something else. Worship in the Bible is never limited to rituals that you perform in some sort of sacred place. Worship is never just what you do when you come together with other people to sing or to to hear sermons preached. Worship is not that sort of activity. It involves it, but that's not what it is. Worship is, is a valuing of something. Worship is what you do when you choose Mexican food over Thai food. And in that, in that moment, in that decision, you have worshipped the Mexican food because you have banked on that food being more delicious, on that food delivering in a way that the Thai food couldn't, at least on that day, at least for that meal, Your choice of one over the other was an act of worship in the way the Bible thinks of worship. And and similarly, every choice that you make in your life, no matter how small, there is no area of your life too small for God to be implicated in it, for your actions in that area to reflect on Him. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is one of the New Testament's great wisdom teachings. The whole thing is framed a lot like teaching out of Proverbs. And Jesus keeps coming back in some really memorable ways to the two ways idea. That there's a way of wisdom and a way of folly. He talks about the narrow gate into which many enter. And, into which few enter, excuse me. And the wide gate into which many enter. One the path of life, the other the path of death. That's a Proverbs type statement. He talks about the, he ends his Sermon on the Mount talking about 
how you need to build your house on the rock, not on the sand. If you build your house on the sand, it's going to collapse. So build on the rock where it'll last. That's a two ways, wisdom, Proverbs kind of teaching. In the middle of this sermon, Jesus gets at what I think is behind Proverbs 9. He says in the middle of that sermon in Matthew 6, 24, using money as an example, he says no one can serve two masters. It's either or. It's intimate relationship that's exclusive. No one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What was Jesus getting at? Same thing that Proverbs 9 is getting at. When you come to money, for example, what you do with it, how you think about it, in every single decision, reflects a kind of worship of one God or another. It is not neutral, secular ground. It's sacred, full of meaning. And all of us are faced with a choice that lies behind our individual choices. Who will we love and serve? Those are the two voices. God, Baal, whatever idol we might put into, into its place. A call to live life in relationship with the God who made us and came to us in Christ. Or a, a call of folly to live as if he isn't there. Now I want to talk about the two offers. Those are the two voices that are speaking. But what do they say? What do they offer those who pass by? And maybe you notice this. The offers actually on the surface seem really similar. And they are really similar. But they're also different in a profound way. I want to point you towards what's similar about these offers. It might surprise you. And then I want to point you towards what's fundamentally different in these two offers. Now both of them are offering feasts. They're offering the good life pictured in the way the Bible often pictures it as a celebration, as a a, a time of delicious food and drink. Look at the way wisdom describes what she offers. Wisdom has slaughtered her beasts. She's mixed her wine. She's set her table. She calls out to the simple who's not paying attention, come to me, eat my bread, drink of the wine that I've mixed. It's images of, of... feasting and partying of joy of laughter and satisfaction eat drink and live folly is making a similar offer folly isn't making the preparations that wisdom is folly's sort of resting on her laurels she's sitting back and waiting folly offers something that's titillating on its own she doesn't have to sell it that hard come stolen bread is sweet Water that you have to drink in secret. That's the really pleasant water. In a way, it's a similar offer. Come to me if you want joy. Come to me if you want a good life. I wonder if that similarity, the fact that both wisdom and folly are telling you that what you get when you come to me is gladness, joy, happiness, satisfaction, a good life. I wonder if that's surprising to you at all. I think surely it is to some of you. I I feel like one of the things we assume a lot of times is that being Christian, living wisely, it's about 
being a good person who says no to the things they're supposed to say no to, right? That faithful Christianity is about what you don't do. It's about restriction. And we associate fun with liberation. Rules or warnings or a sense of what's best, those, those are the sorts of things that hold us back from chilling out and rolling with what seems right. And, and we associate the pleasures of life, the truly good things in life, with the things that Christians can't do, Christians can't enjoy. I recently heard an analogy, I'm going to personalize it a little bit, that, that to me captures exactly what we're tempted to think about Christianity. Um, so when, uh, our boys are, are still small, and one of the things that we try to do on rainy days or days when we can't get them out and sort of blow off some steam, we got a couple of, we have a, a roster of places we take them under such dire circumstances. One of them, up until this point, has been Phillips Toy Mart. Now, I don't know if you guys know about Phillips Toy Mart. It is awesome. It's out, uh, it's out towards Bellmead. It's an old Nashville toy store, an old one. It has a lot of toys you couldn't get at Toys R Us. It's, it's kind of a F.A.O. Schwartz-style toy store. But it's really kid-friendly. They've got it set up where you can actually try out a lot of the toys. You can play with them. It's an, it's an engaging, entertaining experience just to go there. So we've used that sometimes, just to go and let them play, because they have fun, they enjoy it. Every now and then for special occasions, birthdays, whatever, we would actually get them something, but a lot of times it was just to sort of see what's there. But now our oldest has kind of gotten to the age where he's put two and two together, and he realizes that sometimes kids do get to leave with these toys. (laughs) And uh, trips to Phillips are becoming less and less frequent because of that. And it's understandable that he would think that, that he would not receive a trip to Phillips in the same way that he used to now that he knows. And it's almost a little bit cruel to expect him to go to Phillips Toy Mart and not come away with anything. Because you go in there and it's like introducing him, awakening in him these desires for all these amazing toys. And saying, yeah, isn't that fun? Don't you love playing that game where you drop the golf ball in and watch it make its way down the maze? Don't you love that huge train set that, with, with, all those, with all those cars and the drive-in movie theater right in the middle of it and all the elaborate sets that go with it? That's awesome. Wouldn't that be cool to have? We're not going to get one, but wouldn't that be cool to have? It's like you're just stirring up a desire for something you're never going to let him fulfill. I think a lot of times, I don't know about you, but, but maybe you're one of the folks who thinks about God that way or, or the Christian view of God that way, that that. He's given us a bunch of desires, and he's allowing us to taste at least a little bit of what it would be like to live with and for those desires, to see them fulfilled. But he's always saying no. He's always saying, yeah, that would be great, wouldn't it? But you can't have that. Forbidden. Why would God create desires and then not let us fulfill them? Isn't that just a cruel joke? Not according to this passage. According to this passage, what wisdom offers, wisdom as a life that's lived in light of God's godness in relationship with the one who made you, guided by that God's design for you, that 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 wisdom is the way to a truly satisfying meal, to a joy that is real and rich and robust and takes backseat to nothing and no one anywhere. That wisdom is not about saying no all the time. It's about saying yes at the right time. Not about saying no all of the time. 
It's about saying yes at the right time. It is the path to true joy and fulfillment. Uh, that, that's, that's where these offers are similar. They're both offering you joy and fulfillment. It's not like folly offers you a good time and wisdom says to just sit on your hands. They're both offering you a good life. And where, they, where they're different, and this is the key, where they're different is in what they think makes for a good life. Where they tell you the good life is found, that is fundamentally different. See, what folly says is that stolen water is sweet. Bread enjoyed in secret, illicit bread. That's the most pleasant. In other words, the key to real joy in your life. The key to real joy in your life is rejecting the limits put on you by society, put on you by God. Those limits are trying to keep you back from what's ultimately best for you. Those limits are not good for you. They are a barrier to being who you are, which is to say, doing what you want. And that's where true pleasure resides. I see that, 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 that phrase, the, the, the beauty, the allure of stolen water, of bread eaten in secret. I see it as an echo of another famous story in the Bible. If you're not familiar with the Bible, one of the earliest stories in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, is the story of where all sin comes from. And it's framed as, a, as an encounter between the first woman, Eve, and a serpent who comes to her evil, incarnate in a snake, to challenge her to think outside the box. What he says to Eve is that, you know, God told you not to eat of this tree, but the reason he told you not to eat of this tree, the reason there's a boundary put there, is not that there's anything dangerous about that tree, but that God doesn't want you to be all that you could be. He doesn't want you to be like him. If you ate of that tree, you would have what he has. You could be like God. The serpent is chopping away at whatever fear of the Lord Eve still had, at whatever sense that he was God and she wasn't. Chopping it away so that she would put herself into his position. Promising her that it's the stolen bread that's the sweetest. It's the forbidden apples that taste the best. I don't think it's random that the meals offered here contrast meat and wine offered by wisdom and sweet bread, water offered by folly. There is a sweetness to a Krispy Kreme donut. There's a sweetness to stolen bread. But ultimately, they don't satisfy. You eat enough Krispy Kreme donuts to fill your stomach, you pay for it in other ways. You might not be hungry anymore, but you're not okay. <laughs> and and that, that is the point here. Both offering you meals, both saying this is the path to a good life, but one of them is meat and wine, and one of them is bread and water. Now, now the next step in unpacking these two ways 
takes us further into this theme, right? The theme of what is actually offered. What do, what do these different offers lead to? The two results between wisdom and folly could not be more different. They are life and death, literally. What wisdom promises is something that echoes uh, a lot of what we heard Jesus saying in our study from last year here at Trinity. We studied the a Gospel of John, uh, which is one of my f- favorite explanations of who Jesus was and what he did. And we heard Jesus saying a lot of things that, are, that sound a whole lot like what wisdom is offering here. Jesus, I think, was building his ministry as a fulfillment of the promises of wisdom here in Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom says, you come eat from me, you come eat of my meal, and you will live. Look at verse 5 and 6. Come eat of my bread, drink of my wine, leave your simple ways, and live. Look at verse 11, same theme. By me, your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. This was the language Jesus spoke. When he came, he came turning water into wine for feasting. He came offering this woman who had been, who'd spent her life running after men who weren't satisfying her a, a, a fountain of water that satisfies inside of you so that you don't have to draw any more water. He offered anyone who would listen to come to him and eat of the bread that was his body, of the wine that was his blood, and eating from him, not just see your days multiply, not just see years tacked onto the end. You can have eternal life. Jesus is promising to take Proverbs 9 to the next level. Wisdom is a life lived as if he can do it, as if he's true. Wisdom offers life now and forever. The result of folly could not be more different. Stolen water, we said, is sweet for a time. No one is denying that there's some pleasure to be had in doing what seems right in your own eyes. Nobody's denying that. But the end is death. And friends, folly has no answer to that problem. Folly has got nothing. The end of the, of the scene set up with woman folly, it, it kind of reads to me like a, almost like a good horror short story. Almost like something Edgar Allan Poe or Alfred Hitchcock would have come up with. You've got the simple. It's kind of wandering through life. On spring break, down in some tropical climate, he walks past a shop that smells pretty good. It smells like donuts in there. And he's hungry. He's susceptible. He hears a voice calling him to come in. Hey, we got food. Come on, it's yours. We stole it. You don't have to pay a thing for it. Come on and eat. Why not go in? I'm hungry. Why not eat? Doesn't think about it. Doesn't notice that just beyond the fence in the backyard is the pile of Old shoes and discarded backpacks. When he sits down to eat, he eats in the presence of an absence. The dead are there. The former guests reside in Sheol. Many enter and sit down to this feast. None ever leave. I, uh, I recently read a really fascinating essay. It's old now. It's, it's been, I think it was from like the 50s. It was just around the time 
when, um, when societies in the West were starting to shed a lot of the Victorian hesitancy regarding sex. When, when all of a sudden, it seems, it seems all of a sudden in hindsight, entire societies were throwing off boundaries that had normally been taken for granted. When sexuality, sexual expression, and fulfillment became a sort of chief cause for personal liberation. Like if you want to live a life that's free, then you've got to shed those boundaries. Think of the 1960s and, and what's come since. Now this essay was written right around the time that this change was happening. An essay by an English sociologist named Clifford Gorer. And it's called The Pornography of Death. It's a fascinating little essay. And what he says is that there's this direct correlation, for some reason, between a society's shedding of a hesitancy to talk about sex and a society's embrace of a hesitancy to talk about death. That just as societies in the West were starting to explode with sexual expression everywhere in public, so they were also sort of dropping a veil over the subject of death. Huge difference from just 100 years before. 100 years earlier, kids were routinely in the room when someone died. The deathbed occasion was a chance for your neighbors, your friends, all of your family to come gather around and watch it. You need to see this. This is where life is going. But of course, kids were told nothing about sex. Nothing. The way this author put it, that in the in the former period, you told kids that babies came from storks, that you found them in cabbages. But kids were sitting there right there when granddaddy died, when their brother or sister maybe died. Then in the 50s, 60s, 70s in the West, kids are learning about the basics of sex, whether you know it or not, all over the place. But you never tell the kids what really happened to grandpa. It's become almost a taboo subject. I think there's a connection here. Where death shows up now in popular culture, it does show up, but it's never the normal death of normal aging and decay. It's the violent, sensationalized, almost pornographic deaths of the horror of horror movies, of zombie flicks, of uh, you're, uh, take an average CSI show. It's death as something unnatural. But the naturalness of death, that's gone. And yeah, the author of this essay doesn't try to explain the connection. He's just noticing it. A rise in shedding off of all boundaries and decline in the talk of death. But I think the connection makes a lot of sense. Because the one thing you can't tolerate if you're living a life that's all about doing what you want, about shedding all of your limits so that you can enjoy life and all that it has to offer, the one thing you can't tolerate is the thought that there might be a limit you can't shake, that there might be a limit waiting for you just like it's waited for every person who has ever taken breath, and that there is no, matter, there, there is no amount of feeling that you might have, of desire that you might have to shake it, that, that can ever free you from that limitation. The stolen bread might be sweeter, but you still die after you're done eating. 
And folly has no solution to that problem. It, it echoes the story of, of Eve and the serpent again to me. What? You surely won't die. Of course you won't die. Do what you want and live. Just live your life. Proverbs 9 won't let us live with that willful ignorance. There is an end. But you can live through fear of the Lord. The last thing I want to point you to is the postures of each person. The person who hears wisdom's call and responds. The person who rejects the call of wisdom in favor of the call of folly. Right in the middle of the two images, verses 7 to 12, is a kind of profile of the person who responds well to wisdom and the one who doesn't. I want you to have this profile in your mind while we go from here. So from this chapter 9, we launch into the subjects of Proverbs. You need to know what it would look like for you to hear money or words or whatever else talked about and respond well versus hear it and reject it. That profile, those two postures are laid out in verses 7 to 12. They offer us an opportunity for a little bit of self-analysis now and as a way of life. Are we open to wisdom or are we wise in our own eyes? That's the question. That's the two basic postures. There's the scoffer, verse 7 and 8. The scoffer or the mocker. You correct this guy and you will pay dearly for it. This guy can't take correction. He can't handle it. He'll defend himself and attack you. He'll reject you at best. Because this is a guy who, whether he recognizes it or not, he has an identity that hinges on having it all figured out. He's got to be right. That's who he is. He's the one who sees through everything. He's the one who recognizes what everybody else is blind to. He's the one who doesn't need to be instructed because he is wise in his eyes already. Because he leans on his own understanding. Because he does what he wants and doesn't need you telling him he can't. And then there's the wise. And the primary mark of the wise here is that this person lives like he's not wise enough. He loves being corrected. He loves to receive instruction. Reprove a wise man, verse 8 says, and he'll love you. Give instruction to a wise man. He'll be still wiser because he starts with fear of the Lord, verse 10. He knows that God is God, that he is not, that there is more going on in this world than he'll ever be able to get his mind around. There will always be things that he can't see. So he needs correction. He always will need correction. He'll never have it all figured out. He always seeks to expose more and more of his life to the Lord because he fears him and not himself. Here's the way another Old Testament scholar put it. The further one goes with folly or wisdom, the less or the more will one put up with the criticism, which is wisdom's teaching method. Did you get that? Let me read that again. This is huge as we face what's coming in Proverbs. The further one goes with folly on one hand or wisdom on the other, further one goes down one of the two ways to live. The less or the more will one put up with the criticism, which is wisdom's teaching method. 
So the question for you and for me, are you ready to seek wisdom together? You can be. You can be. This is not an invitation that goes out only to the uber elite, to the super intelligent, to the ones who have proven by their track record that they're ready. This is an invitation to everybody who comes by. Come and dine. You can have a good life if you come through me. And it doesn't matter what you have done to this point, how foolish you might have been. Christ came to you. Christ died for you, for fools, so that he could make them wise. The only thing that matters, not what you have been, but what you're willing to be now. Because you've got to remember, if you want to benefit from what's coming next in this series, if you want to live a life of growing wisdom, the thing you've got to remember is that these words in Proverbs, and, and from now on in this series, these words are not for somebody else. They're for you. You've got to remember that you can't rest on your laurels. I don't care how much you know about the Bible, how good you think you might be at teaching it, how long you've been living as a Christian. These proverbs are not for others who don't have your knowledge base. They are for you. And you've always got to be opening up your life for more insight, more correction, more wisdom. And, and ultimately, what makes us willing to be corrected when we see our, uh, the only thing that can give us the courage and even the desire to seek and receive correction is the knowledge that our lives aren't really about us in the first place. That we got nothing to protect because our lives aren't ours. That the reason we're here, the reason our lives have any value at all is that our lives are about worshiping God. Our lives are meant for the display of His glory as a kind of trophy case for all to see of what He has accomplished, of what He's done, of what's possible for us to enjoy when we live life as if He is not just our Creator, but our Redeemer. That desire is the only one that can motivate us to recognize and purge away whatever it is that clouds His glory. And that's the desire that's going to fuel us as we get further into this book. I want us to pray together over that right now. Father, we have so much to learn. How much we have to learn is part of what we need to learn. We need to be shown our own weakness and insufficiency. So we pray to you that you would help us by your spirit to embrace whatever correction is coming through this word. That you would help us to seek it out and not shrink back that you would help us to embrace living with the limits that come from being one who is not God, and that you would encourage us by the promise that Jesus is for us, even us fools, that there is life in him when we follow him. Help us, we pray, for his sake. Amen.